Welcome to session 41 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 10th of February. Today we'll be looking at Numbers 5 to 7 and Psalm 41. But so far in Numbers, we've picked up with the Israelites at Mount Sinai now able to enter God's presence. God instructed Moses on organising their camp. God counted each tribe and assigned them specific locations around the tabernacle. This strategic placement served two purposes. First, it provided a defensive layout as the Israelites moved into enemy territory. And second, it placed God's presence, the tabernacle, at the centre of the camp and the centre of the Israelites' lives and society. We then read how the Levites were divided into three subgroups, the Gershonites, the Kohathites and the Merorites. Each group had specific roles. The Gershonites were responsible for the tabernacle's fabrics, the Kohathites cared for the sacred furniture and the Merorites managed the structure's frames and accessories. They were to take care of the tabernacle very seriously. So let's jump in today's readings with numbers five to seven. In today's chapters, we see the pattern from Genesis continued through some very specific instructions. We have to remember that the Israelites had many rules and instructions that are not included in the Torah. Because of this, we need to meditate on why the rules that are included are there. For example, those that were leprous had to leave the camp. Why is that mentioned here? In yesterday's reading, we read how God's ordering of the camp and charging the Levites mirrored God ordering creation and charging Adam and Eve. In this particular passage mirrors Genesis 3 and the fall. Those that are leprous have taken on something of the nature of death, admittedly not by their own choice. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve chose death when they did things their own way. Just like Adam and Eve was sent out of the garden, here the leper is sent out of the camp. The same Hebrew word is used in both cases. A theological point is being made. We need to maintain the integrity of this new creation, this new Garden of Eden that is reflected in the camp of Israel. There's also an antidote to the mistake of Adam and Eve in the next set of instructions. We're now at Numbers 5 verses 5 to 11. If someone commits some sort of sin, they are to confess their sin and make it right. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They refused to acknowledge their wrong and blamed someone else. In this new creation that God is setting up, there is now a way forward if the people screw up, but only if they choose rightly. Now, I have to be honest, I really struggle with the next passage. And I think it's important to be real when we find different passages difficult. We see a rule given out that if a man just suspects his wife of cheating, he can take it to the priest. The priest will write a curse on a piece of paper, wash that curse off into some water, add some tabernacle dust from the floor and then force the woman to drink it. If she's not guilty, great, nothing happens. If she is guilty, her body will swell and her womb will waste away, making her barren. I understand this high sense of wanting to maintain purity and holiness in the camp. We want to dissuade people from having affairs. But for me, I struggle with how embarrassing and hurtful this would be for a woman who was innocent. She would feel hurt and betrayed by her husband, and there's no restoration made there. The important thing to remember when you're struggling with the passage in the Bible is that the Bible is still true and it's still holy. The problem is either A, this is a different culture and time, and so it seems completely foreign to us and we just can't understand it at the moment, or B, we have a heart problem. And this is something I'm wrestling with every time I read this passage. God, show me where I'm misunderstanding something, or where my heart might need to change. 
I thought I'd share that with you so that, you know, if there are bits in the Bible that you also struggle with, you can know that you're not alone. But how does this passage fit in the retelling of Genesis? In Genesis 6, we read how women had illicit sex with spiritual beings. The consequences of this was death to their wickedness through flood waters. Here, we have instructions on what to do if a woman has illicit sex, and she must drink God's judgment through cursed waters. If she has lived right, then she will have children. She will be fruitful and multiply as Noah did. If she has not, then her line will stop with her. Putting aside the logistics of the practice for now, the passage read theologically can be seen as a reminder that if the Israelites remained committed to their God as a woman to a husband, they will flourish. If they don't, they will perish. We then get a chapter on the Nazarite vow. This was a vow someone could make if they wanted to dedicate a period of time to God. They would live to a much higher standard of holiness before God. These people would then be on similar levels to the priests in terms of holiness and purity. There are a couple of key Nazarites in Israel's history as we go forward. One is the judge Samson and the other is the prophet Samuel. One follows these rules and one breaks them. So it might be worth bookmarking this chapter and rereading it when we get to their stories so you can see where they went right or wrong. Where might this mirror Genesis? One of the instructions of the vow is to avoid all alcohol. This could be a reflection on Noah's mistake in Genesis 9 as he got drunk on wine. Numbers 1 to 6, when read theologically, is establishing a new creation and establishing new practices and guidances that will help people avoid the mistakes of the old creation. Finally, sticking true to the book's name, we get a list of the numbers as the leaders of the 12 tribes each bring their tribes offering before God as the tabernacle is officially set up in the new camp of the Israelites. The repetition serves to show the extravagant wealth the Israelites bring in their offering to God. He is worthy of the best. And that's Numbers 5 to 7. Now let's jump into Psalm 41. This psalm is attributed to King David and falls into the category of Lament Psalm. It has all the features we've come to expect from a Lament Psalm. A complaint, a request for God to intervene, and a declaration of trust. Psalm 41 is also significant because it's the last psalm of the first book of the psalms. The longer collection of psalms is broken down into five smaller books. It's not clear why the divisions between each book is made. Some argue it to reflect the Torah that also has five books. Either way, we can tell where one book ends and another begins by the doxologies that end each section. A doxology is a liturgical hymn or declaration of praise that is used to end a service, prayer or passage. The structure of the psalm is a chiasm where the passage reflects itself. Here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. And so we have verses 1 to 3, a declaration of trust in God. Verses 4, a prayer for mercy and healing. Verses 5 to 9, lament over suffering. Verse 10, a prayer for mercy and healing. And verses 11 to 12, a declaration of trust in God before ending with the concluding doxology. The psalm opens with a declaration of trust in God. The Lord protects those who care for the poor. He keeps them alive, protects them from their enemies and heals their illnesses. This declaration of trust then leads the psalmist to bring his request to God. Have mercy on me and heal me. 
We can gather from the psalm that the psalmist is inflicted with some sort of illness due to the number of references to health. The psalmist then moves forward to bring his complaint, the suffering they have faced due to their illness. In this example, the worst thing isn't the illness itself, but how much the psalmist's enemies are enjoying their illness. While the psalmist is there, presumably wasting away, the enemies are rejoicing and telling everyone about it. They're waiting for the psalmist to die, and even the psalmist's friends have turned on them. Having shared their complaint with God, the psalmist once again asks God to intervene, having mercy on me and raise me up. And the psalmist returns once more to a declaration of trust. The psalmist knows that God will delight in him, not his enemies. God will be the one to protect them. Finally, this psalm and first book of the wider collection ends with a blessing to the Lord. In this psalm, we can easily see the different stages of biblical lament and how each one is important to processing difficult situations and emotions.